right. Are we ready, Carl? Carl is ready. So we are ready. It's a couple minutes after seven. Appreciate you folks being here on time. We are going to get started with a word of prayer, and then we'll continue talking about the millennium. Trusting that the Lord will give us some clarity, and more than anything, trusting that the Lord will just give us a good time together, a good time looking at His Word together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, we want to thank you so much for how good you are to us, and just the incredible grace that you have extended to each one of us. We thank you that you are compassionate and you are merciful and you have not punished us as our sins deserve. Jesus, we are so humbled and amazed that you willingly took upon yourself all of our guilt, all of our condemnation, all of the wrath that we deserve. And you did it, Lord Jesus, out of love for the Father and out of love for us. And we thank you that through your incredible sacrifice, we have been completely cleansed. Our sin has been removed and we now have received your righteousness. And so, Father, when you look at us, you look at us in the same way as you look at Jesus. His righteousness has been given to us. And we just want to say thank you. We want to say thank you. And, Father, we also just want to pray that the work that you have done would continue to transform us. Father, I know we were talking about this a lot last Thursday at the men's ministry. But Lord, I just want to pray that you would continue to transform each one of us, that you would continue working in each of our hearts and each of our lives, making us more and more like you. We thank you for the ongoing gift of your Holy Spirit, as we were being reminded of on Sunday. We thank you for giving us your spirit and giving us your spirit daily. And we ask right now, Lord, that you would send your spirit in our midst, that your spirit would be here that he would be teaching and interpreting and instructing and bringing light to the passages of Scripture that we will read together. And finally, Father, we just want to thank you so much that you want to be known, that you want to be found, that you, in fact, are the one that came and sought us when we were lost and made it able for us to seek you and find you. And so we just pray tonight, Lord, that we would come to know you better, that we would come to understand you better, that we would come to understand your word better. We realize, Lord, we're not going to answer every question around the millennium. We realize there's going to still be a lot of uncertainties when it comes to this topic, but we also believe that we can know you better, that we can grow in our faith, that we can grow closer to you, that we can grow in our understanding of what you teach us in your word. So we just pray that this would happen tonight. And Jesus, it is in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen. 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 Well, I know it's been three weeks since we met, which is a long time. At least it seems like a long time to me. Maybe it doesn't seem like a long time for you. Um, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time doing review, just because, as I jokingly said at the end of the, our last time, if we do a thorough review, we will be right where we ended at the end of our time together today, because this does become a pretty intense subject. But basically, we are looking at the theme, the idea of the millennium. And remember, the word millennium simply means a thousand years. So we are looking specifically 
at the thousand years that are presented to us in the opening chapters of Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And we have read those verses. We're going to read them again in a moment tonight. I'm just going to put in parentheses verse 7. Because remember we said that these are the only verses in Scripture that specifically mention this period of a thousand years. So what we did the last time that we met was start to look at two of the three major positions regarding the millennium. Um, the sheet that you have in front of you and then the diagram sheet, um, we used those a lot last time. They kind of help us just to sort of keep track of the major points of the three major millennial positions. So remember, we looked first at the premillennial position and what they believe is that the return of Jesus Christ occurs before the millennium. So they believe Jesus Christ comes and then he establishes the thousand year reign of believers on earth with him. There are some who believe that the second coming of Christ is a single event. There are some that believe the second coming of Christ is a twofold event. The folks who believe that it is a single event, oftentimes referred to as historical premillennialists, the folks that believe in a twofold return of Christ before the millennium, uh, a lot of them are what we would call dispensational premillennialists. We looked at that position. It does get a little complex, so I don't want to go into all of the details of that tonight. Um, there were, I think, some, some pretty challenging issues to overcome if you adopt that position. But again, generally speaking, the pre-mills believe Jesus Christ comes a second time and then the thousand-year reign begins. The second position we looked at is what is referred to as the post-millennial position. Just again, very simply, the post-millennials believe that the church age kind of transitions into the millennial reign. It is something that happens without the return of Jesus Christ. Because again, the idea of post-mill is that the return of Jesus Christ happens post or after the millennium. So the return of Jesus Christ concludes the millennial kingdom. So the post-mills believe that when Jesus Christ... Recording in progress. His first time. Wait, we missed all the stuff up to that? All right, I'm not going to repeat myself. So what the post-mills believe is that when Jesus Christ came a first time, he established his kingdom, he established the church age, but did not inaugurate the millennial kingdom. So again, sometime with the church age, that transitions into the millennial kingdom. That's what the post-mills believe. A lot of post-mills would not take the thousand years literally. They would not believe you know, that once the millennium comes, it has to be a literal thousand years before the return of Jesus Christ. A lot of the pre-mills, particularly the dispensationalist pre-mills, they do take that literally. They believe it will be a literal thousand years. So we talked about some problems that the post-mills have. So what we want to do tonight with at least the beginning, if not all of the time that we have together, is look a bit more carefully at what is referred to as the millennial position, the millennial, And again, it's a little bit of a, a poor name. We've talked about this because the Latin root ah means no or not. 
So technically speaking, amillennial means no millennium or not the millennium, which is not at all what amillennialists believe. So another way of describing the amillennialist is realized millennium. Remember when we started way back in the fall and talked about eschatology. We talked about realized eschatology and we talked about future eschatology. There are things of the kingdom. There are things that were prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament that have been realized now with the first coming of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is here. We have eternal life now. We have salvation now. We are new in Christ now. All of these are aspects of realized eschatology. There is future eschatology, which we've been speaking of for quite a few months now, the things that are still on the horizon. So the amillennialist actually believes in the millennium, doesn't discount it or say that that's not something that is spoken of in scripture. But what they believe is that the millennium is realized. The millennium is now. So again, in terms of the diagram that we've been using, it's the simplest because you have the first coming of Christ and then you have the return of Jesus Christ. And so what the amillennialist proposes is that when Jesus Christ came the first time, he inaugurated the millennium. And when he comes a second time, he will bring to conclusion the millennium. So obviously, amillennialists do not believe that it is a literal thousand years because Jesus Christ came about 2,000 years ago. So we've talked a bit about how it actually is more difficult to take numbers in the book of Revelation literally. The genre of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and apocalyptic literature is incredibly symbolic. And so when you are being told about 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, you probably are not going to be well served if you think like the Jehovah's Witnesses do, there's literally 144,000 individuals. And if you're 144,001, you've missed out. You're probably looking at a highly stylized number, particularly when you see the New Jerusalem that has 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. When you're looking at all of the times that seven appears in the book of Revelation. You are probably not to be thinking in terms of literal seven, but you probably should be taking it symbolically. So in fact, I think you're much better served if you understand the thousand years, not in a literal sense, but in a symbolic sense, representing a long period of time or an age. Or if you really want to get into numbers, you know, it's 10 cubed. And 10 is a number that appears some in Revelation. I don't want to get into that too much. But it certainly seems to be in keeping with the apocalyptic nature of Revelation not to have to take the number 1,000 literally. 
Remember, we talked a bit about the fact that the second coming of Jesus Christ is clearly depicted in Revelation 19. So, you know, initially you may think there is a challenge if Revelation 19 describes the return of Jesus Christ, how can Revelation 20 be talking about something that is happening before that return? So this is one of the arguments that the pre-mills make. Revelation 19 talks about the second coming of Christ. So Revelation 20 must be the millennium that happens after the return of Jesus Christ. But remember, we've said that the book of Revelation is a cycle or a series of sevens. So you have the seven messages to the seven churches to open the book. Then you have the seven seals being broken. You have the seven trumpets being blown. You have the seven symbolic histories. You have the seven bold judgments. And each one of these cycles seems to end with a description of the end of this age. Seems to end with a description of the return of Jesus Christ. Remember, we read uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, which is actually the breaking of the sixth seal. And in that is a description of every island being uprooted, every mountain being uprooted, the stars falling from the sky and the sun and moon being darkened. It's, it's clearly very much language that seems to be depicting the end of the world. And you're only in Revelation chapter six. So again, I think these two problems are relatively easy to overcome not taking the thousand years as literally a thousand years, not saying that because the millennium is described in Revelation 20, it has to come after the return of Jesus Christ. I think those two issues are, are, are I can pretty confidently say that, that these explanations are, are pretty solid. And in fact, I think actually are better reading of the book of Revelation, not to try to read it as a straight line chronology, and not to try to take numbers as being literal. I think once you do either of those, you're really kind of misreading the book of Revelation. So those are a couple of maybe the initial challenges that the amillennial position faces. But I think again, the nature of the genre of Revelation, because it is apocalyptic, because it is highly symbolic, kind of helps us not to have to see a thousand years as literal. And because of the way the book itself is structured, each cycle ending with the most significant event on the horizon, the return of Jesus Christ, I think makes it pretty easy to believe that what is described in Revelation 20 doesn't necessarily have to occur chronologically after what is described in Revelation 19, okay? Now, what I wanna do next is actually reread Revelation 20 verses one to six. But before we do that, I'll just pause to see if there are any questions about either the quick review of the pre-mill and the post-mill position and this sort of opening discussion of the amill position. But any comments or questions? It's, we call it seven symbolic histories. It's basically Revelation chapters 12 to 14. It's, it's actually an opening phrase that is obvious in the Greek, not as obvious in the English translations. It's not a clear seven, like seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, but because it's right in the middle of those cycles of seven, you're looking for seven because you're kind of like expecting it. So I think the phrase is kaidon and I saw. And I think if you count that in Revelation chapters 12 to 14, 
there's seven different times that John begins a subsection of that by saying, and I saw. Um, I assume the English translations are capturing that, and that's going from memory, so that may be right, not right, but I'm pretty sure that's how that section of 12 to 14 is, is put together. But the biggest thing is, you know, if you look at the end of the seals, if you look at the end of the trumpets, if you look at the end of chapter 14, if you look at the end of the bowls, it's pretty clear that the level of cataclysmic event really does seem to be describing the end of this age and the events around the return of Jesus Christ. I think, again, you're kind of hard-pressed to say that that's something short of final judgment. Um, again, just if you want to, again, reread Revelation 6, 12 to 17. And, you know, if you were just reading that in isolation, you would probably say this, this is a description of the end of the world. And so you're kind of looking for that. And again, it makes sense because the most significant event for all of us as Christians that we've talked about many, many, many times is the return of Jesus Christ. And so if you take this way of understanding the book of Revelation, then the return of Jesus Christ is not just the most significant historical event on the horizon. It's not just the most significant theological event on the horizon. It's actually the very backbone of how the book of Revelation is structured. The entire structure of Revelation focuses on these cycles of seven, each one of them ending with the return of Jesus Christ, which to me from a literary standpoint is like really elegant and really profound. And it, it makes it to me a lot easier to read because, you know, basically the entire cosmos is destroyed here. You know, then you're like, well, in chapter eight, what's left? I mean, once the trumpet judgments come, what's left? There's nothing left. So anyhow, but yeah, seven symbolic histories, Revelation 12 to 14. But any other comments or questions before we again read Revelation 21 to 6? No? Okay. So I know we've read it a couple of times, but it is only six verses. And hopefully each time we're reading it, uh, the Lord is kind of helping us to maybe see the best way to understand these verses. But Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6, it says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, so we've talked about this a little bit in the last couple times we've gotten together. So what we initially see here is that this section divides pretty nicely into two smaller sections. So verses one to three primarily deal with this event 
that we will refer to as the binding of Satan. Now, of course, there's some other details that are given to us in these three verses, but that seems to be sort of the main event of the opening three verses of Revelation chapter 20. Then verses 4 to 6, one of the central aspects of that is the ruling or the reigning of certain individuals. We'll get into more detail of that in a second. Certain individuals ruling or reigning with Christ. Now, both of these subsections make a reference to a thousand years. So again, it is possible to say, well, is this a different thousand years? But we're going to say that they're actually referring to the same thousand years. There is a reference to the thousand years in these opening three verses. There is a reference to the thousand years in these second three verses. So it seems to be that what John is seeing, the events that are being described in the opening three verses, and the events that are being described in the second three verses, they are all part of the same thousand years. Part of the same thousand years. And then the last verse that mentions this is verse 7, where it says at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released from his prison. He gathers together the forces from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. They surround the camp of God, the holy city. Fire comes down and destroys him. So there is a description of the end of the thousand years in verses 7 and following. But what we want to look at is now the details that are given to us in these two three-verse subsections. Now again, what the amillennial is arguing is that these events are describing the church age. Okay? Because the amillennialist is believing that when Christ came the first time, he inaugurated the millennium. And that when he comes a second time, he will bring the millennium to a conclusion. So the big question for the amillennialist is, are these verses really describing what is taking place now in the church age? So an initial reaction, of course, is this binding of Satan. An angel comes down from heaven with a chain and keys and chains up Satan and opens the abyss and throws him into the abyss. And of course, we might immediately think of that verse in, in 1 Peter, where Peter says Satan is a roaring lion, roaming about, seeking those whom he may devour. So you say, well, okay, if Satan is a roaring lion roaming about, how can he be chained and locked in an abyss? Okay, well, one of the initial answers that I would give to that is that when describing someone like Satan, there's not a single description of him that is all-inclusive. You know, Peter says he's like a roaring lion. Well, John sees him as a fierce red dragon. He appeared in the garden as a serpent. So you can see how we actually have no problem thinking of Satan as a serpent, thinking of Satan as a roaring lion, thinking of Satan as a ferocious red dragon because we realize that each one of those is teaching us something about the character and nature of Satan. So to me, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it makes a lot of sense 
to describe Satan as a lion that's roaming about and as a dragon that's, you know, chained and in prison. But I can certainly say that it's allowable for Scripture to paint more than one picture of Satan. Of course, the biggest example of this is Jesus. You know, think of all of the different ways that Jesus is described. Think of all of the different ways that Jesus is depicted. He's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's described as the lamb who was slain. You know, and the way that he appears to John in Revelation chapter 1 is, you know, an incredibly intense, glorified version. So in other words, yeah, I would say initially it may seem that the binding of Satan that's described here is in tension with the description of Satan roaming and roaring like a lion. But I think, for me at least, this is trying to teach us something about how Satan has been limited that isn't necessarily in conflict with what Peter says, okay? Now, is there any biblical backing for that? Or are we just saying that because we want it to be true? Well, I think we actually talked about this um, a couple of, of times ago here. But Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. Because what we want to do is we want to see, is there biblical agreement from other passages of Scripture that would actually support the idea that what John is describing in these verses is actually things that are taking place in the church age. Is there biblical support for that? Because again, one of the, the basic principles of biblical interpretation is if you have a pretty tough passage of Scripture, if you have a passage of Scripture that you know the believing church is in disagreement on, that is really, really tough to make sense of, one of the best things that you can do is try to find similar passages of Scripture and see if that helps you to understand. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, well, the verses leading up to it, Jesus has been driving out demons. And say again? Yeah, do I have the verse wrong? Uh, yeah, I, I may have the verse wrong. We'll, we'll see here in a second. Is it 29? Okay. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, leading up to that, um, Jesus has been driving out demons, but his opponents have accused him of driving out demons by the power of Beelzebub, or the power of Satan. And so Jesus basically gives a response to that. And part of the response is what is found in verse 29. Thank you, Ted, for that correction. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, it says, Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first binds the strong man? Then he can rob his house. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus is saying that he is driving out demons. He is plundering the kingdom of darkness. He's plundering the kingdom of Satan, not by the power of Satan, as his enemies are accusing him of, but in fact, he's doing it by binding the strong man. He's plundering the strong man's house by binding him. Well, what is the strong man's house? The strong man's house is the kingdom of darkness. Who is the strong man? Satan. 
So Jesus is saying, actually, he is driving out demons because he has bound Satan. That's the metaphor that Jesus is using. He is plundering the kingdom of darkness because he has first bound the king of the kingdom of darkness, Satan. And again, it's not an uncommon Greek word, but the word that's used here to bind, deo, is the same word that's used to describe the binding of Satan in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. So here we have a clear reference to the coming of Christ into this world, binding Satan, limiting his activity, limiting his ability to do what he had done in the past. Let's look at John chapter 12, verses 31 to 32. John chapter 12, verses 31 to 32. Again, we're just asking the question, are there other passages of Scripture that support the idea that this description of the millennium could be seen as describing what is taking place in the church age? So Revelation chapter 12, verses 31 to 32. Um, I'm sorry, John. John chapter 12. Let's pick it up in verse 30. Jesus said, this wo voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world, and now the prince of this world is cast out. Okay, well, who is the prince of this world? Satan. So Jesus is saying, now is the time for judgment on this world, and now the prince of this world is cast out. Now, again, the word that's used there is the Greek word ekbalo. The word that is used in Revelation when Satan is thrown into the abyss is the Greek word balo. So, again, not identical, but the same root. Not identical, but the same root. The casting out of Satan that Jesus is describing in John 12, 31, when did that happen? Well, it happened when Jesus went to the cross. Look at verse 32. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking, of course, primarily of his being lifted up on the cross, but also being lifted up in glory, I will draw all men to myself. So Jesus is saying, so significant is going to be his exaltation on the cross and his exaltation as he re returns to the Father after the resurrection, that one of the byproducts of that is that Satan will be driven out. Again, that similar word from Revelation chapter 20. Verse 3, it says, he threw him into the abyss. The Greek word, balo. Okay? So again, we have another passage of Scripture that seems to talk about the significant limitation of the activity of Satan with the first coming of Christ into the world. All right? Looking a bit more closely at verse 3. 
because John gives us one specific fruit of Satan being bound and thrown into the abyss. So looking at Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, it says, He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. So specifically what Revelation verse 3 tells us is this binding of Satan that's being described in these verses specifically bears the fruit of Satan no longer being able to deceive the nations. Well, what does Jesus say in John 12, 32? He says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, not just those of the nation of Israel, not just Jews. He will draw everyone to himself. One of the things that we see with the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ is that Satan's ability to deceive the nations has been greatly reduced. Why? Because the gospel is going forth into every nation. We think of the Great Commission, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, go into all the world and preach my gospel. Preach my gospel to every creature under heaven. The Apostle Paul talks about that in Colossians that the gospel is being preached throughout the entire world. With the coming of Christ the first time, the message of the gospel is now advancing, not just within the nation of Israel, not just amongst the Jewish people. It is going to all of the nations. And so again, because that is the specific emphasis that John gives us with this binding of Satan, that he's no longer able to deceive the nations, to me, it seems to be a strong connection between the binding of Satan, his inability now to deceive the nations, and the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations. Again, specifically when we think of the period of history before the coming of Christ, most of the nations were grossly deceived. Most of the nations were in grave darkness. Why? Because God had chose one nation as the recipient of his revelation, the nation of Israel. God was not revealing himself through prophets like Abraham and Moses to all the nations. He was revealing himself to one nation, Israel. But now that Jesus Christ has come, the gospel is not just for the Jew only. It is for the Jew first, but it's also the message of salvation for all of the nations. So is it possible that what John is describing here in a highly symbolic, very vivid pictorial way in this binding of Satan is a beautiful picture of what has now been thrown open by Christ coming the first time of the gospel being preached to every nation. Satan's ability now to hold all of the nations in deception and darkness has been significantly hindered. And now, as the book of Revelation tells us, when all are gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ, there will be people from every language, every tribe, every nation, every people will be represented around the throne of Jesus. So, again, I think there is some pretty strong evidence that what is being described in the first three verses of Revelation actually seem to be echoing things that are clearly taught elsewhere. That Jesus, as he's driving out demons, 
is saying that he has bound the strong man. He has bound Satan to be able to do that. Jesus saying that as he goes to the cross, that Satan is cast out or driven out. And John saying that he's cast in or thrown into the abyss. Jesus saying that as he goes to the cross, he's going to gather all men to himself. Certainly the spread of the gospel amongst all nations because of the coming of Christ the first time. Satan is now incapable of holding all of the nations in that darkness and deception. So again, I personally feel like this resonates much more with what is being said here than trying to create a third age. Remember, we talked about that. Is the millennium a third age? The New Testament talks about the present age and the coming age. Is there a third age? To me, this seems more convincing than trying to create a third age. Something that is better than right now, but not as good as eternity. Because to me, I see, yeah, Jesus has bound Satan. Jesus has cast Satan out. Jesus has significantly limited Satan's ability to deceive the nations. And the gospel is going forth in every language. So to me, these initial three verses of Revelation 20 actually resonate with things that are caught clearly in other places of Scripture, in my estimation. But let me pause there to see if there are comments or questions about what we're saying about these opening three verses. Yeah, Ted, go ahead. Yeah, please. We won't leave the Zoom people in the dark. Gracias, hermano. Um, you know, it's a little dangerous to try, try to connect passages of Scripture if they don't really connect, but let me know what you think about this or anybody else. Um, you know, he, he talks about the angel having a chain, but also a key. And I was wondering if there's any connection with the, the key that Jesus says he has in his message to the Church of Philadelphia mm -hmm. in Revelation 3, where he, he, he says, I have the key of David. I open and no one can shut. I shut and no one can open. Again, sort of a shutting, in this case, Satan being uh, in, in prison for a while. And I don't know if the key of David is connected to the key here in Revelation 20 or not. No, I, I think what you're doing, Ted, is, is absolutely what the Lord wants us to do. Particularly if you're looking at the book of Revelation, looking for how symbols in one passage in the book of Revelation are used elsewhere in the book of Revelation. It's interesting, you may be familiar with this. As far as I know, the key of David is only mentioned once in the Old Testament. And it's mentioned in terms of a, uh, an official being given authority. So I think the idea that I would, would get from the key is the idea of authority. And so the connection that I would make is the authority behind Satan being locked in the abyss is not ultimately belonging to the angel, but is ultimately belonging to Jesus, who has the key that closes doors that no one can open and opens doors that no one can close. There may be connections beyond that, but I think, Ted, you know, what you're doing is exactly what the Lord would want us to do, particularly within the book of Revelation. As we are looking at one passage of Revelation, are there pictures or symbols or language that are used elsewhere in the book of Revelation that would help us to understand. But my understanding of the idea of key is just simply the idea of authority. 
And ultimately, all authority belongs to Jesus. So even though it is an angel that does it, it is an angel who is being given, at least in part, the authority of Christ, and he is thus able to do what he's able to do. So, but no, thank you for bringing that up. But other other comments or questions? So uh, a couple of comments. One, uh, Luke 10, where the 72 return, and yes. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So perhaps that's seeing the fell. Well, one thing that I would say about that is it's another passage that seems to indicate that with the coming of Christ, the activity of Satan has significantly changed. I don't remember the exact verses. I have it written down. 17 and 18? 18. Okay. So I didn't refer to that one, but that is another one that seems to indicate a significant change in the activity of Satan. Of course, we have Revelation chapter 12 where Michael kicks him out of heaven. You know, so we certainly have strong precedent for the activity of Satan being limited before the end of the age. Definitely. So thank you for bringing that other one up. So, you know, then when we look at history and the advancement of the gospel, the advancement of humanity from the time Christ died till, you know, there are significant um, uh, all kinds of things okay. are happening, and perhaps that's related to gospel spreading. But but what strikes me most is if Satan is indeed bound, if so much authority has in fact been given to us, then maybe it's just a few of us that we are living below our authority, our authority, our ability, because if Satan is bound. And yes, there will be suffering. That's right in the gospel, you know, granted unto you to believe and to serve. So that's it. So in spite of suffering, the kingdom and the kingdom is spreading because Daniel says it will, it will keep spreading. And we see that happening now. I think the, the encouragement to us is we should go have at it, you know, go plunder the kingdom of darkness because... Satan is bound, and we have the authority, and Christ is on our, the King of Kings is on our side. So if we're not tapping into that amazing resource, then we're just living very even sub-media. Yeah, I think generally speaking, that's not just true on this point, but I think generally speaking, we tend to sell short the work of Christ in our lives. You know, we were talking again at the men's ministry, Romans chapter 6, where we are no longer slaves to sin. So why are you living like you're a slave to sin? So I think it's another example that is exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, the Bible says we're up here, but in practice, many of us are content living down here. Because every time I sin, I'm actually saying, oh, I'm a slave to sin. That's why I'm sinning. But the gospel declares that I'm not a slave to sin anymore. So why am I still living as if I'm a slave to sin? So I think the principle that you're, the example that you're giving goes far beyond just this. I think generally speaking, you know, one of the reasons why it's so important that we immerse ourselves in the word is so that God can constantly remind us of everything that he's done and everything that we are. Because the more that we start understanding the work of Christ in our lives, 
the more we start living a life that reflects who we are in Christ. So, yeah, no, I think the point you make is an excellent one, an excellent one. So, yeah, I mean, if this really is referring to something that has taken place, then absolutely we are in a position to take advantage of that, and we should. And part of how we take advantage of that is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ all over the planet. Whether it's because the planet is here, because people from every nation are in Philadelphia, or whether we're going to another place on this planet. But that certainly is part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But any other, any other comments or questions about the first three verses here before we jump into the next three? It makes, it makes sense. You see sort of the, the connections there with the other passages we looked at that, that basically makes sense. Again, I'm not trying to convince you that you have to be a millennial. I'm just trying to show you that I think there are some strong biblical arguments to accept that as maybe the best way to understand these verses. So, okay, if there's nothing more, let's start to look a bit more closely then at verses 4 to 6. Now these, I think, probably are a bit more challenging than the opening three verses. So let's just kind of go back and look at it. It says in verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. So John sees a group of individuals. All he says is those. And what he sees of them is that they are seated on thrones and that they have authority to judge. And again, a throne is an item that appears regularly in the book of Revelation, and a throne represents authority, dominion, power, rule, in this case, authority to judge. So John sees a group of individuals on which were seated, uh, seated on thrones to which were given authority to judge. Then he says, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Now again, there's some discussion. Is the second description a further description of the first group? Or is it a different group? Or is it a smaller portion of the first group? So there are your three options. And believe me, all three options have been argued. But we'll hold off on that for a second. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. So... This second group of individuals that John sees is a group of martyrs. So these are individuals who have lost their life for the name of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now it's interesting because earlier in Revelation, John saw a similar group. In Revelation chapter 6, he sees some souls under the martyr, or excuse me, some souls under the altar. Some martyrs under the altar. I'm getting tongue-tied here. I apologize. Um, so this is in Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So there is some precedent earlier in the book for John having a vision of faithful witnesses of Christ who have lost their life 
for Christ. So there's a pretty strong connection there. So not 100% sure yet that first group that he sees that are seated on thrones that are given authority to judge. Are they the same as the martyrs? Are they a different group than the martyrs? Or are the martyrs part of that first group? Okay, but definitely he's being given a vision of folks who have lost their life for their witness to Christ. Then the key in terms of trying to understand this is the end of verse 4. It says, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Okay, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So this is where the beginning of the significant challenges come. We have a group of people who have clearly died physically, the martyrs, because they have died physically as a witness to Christ. So like the group that John saw in Revelation 6, these folks are in the presence of the Lord. But what does it mean that they came to life? Now, the Greek word that's used there is a very simple word, which usually just means to live. Zao. It says, and they came to life, past tense, or they lived. So that's part of the challenge. What does it mean that these group of peoples, this group of people, at least some of which have died for their faith in Christ, what does it mean that they came to life? That's one of the questions we got to answer. Now, verse 5 NIV puts this in parentheses, and rightly so. It says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So now John is not just talking about the dead that he is seeing. He's talking about the rest of dead humanity. And he says, For the entirety of the thousand years, they do not come to life. Okay? So we're starting to see a distinction here between the first group who came to life and the rest of humanity who were dead, who did not come to life, okay? Now, even more of a challenge because he describes this for us. He says, this is the first resurrection. So this coming to life that John is describing that at least those who have died for their faith in Christ and possibly a larger group that's being described in the opening of verse 4, this group of individuals came to life. And this is the first resurrection. The rest of humanity did not come to life during the thousand years. And so it would seem, John is implying, they did not participate in the first resurrection. Okay, now, verse 6, blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. So that group of humanity that experiences the first resurrection, that experiences this coming to life, they are blessed. Why? Because the second death has no power over them. And they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, now we're given a first bit of, of anchor line here. 
because now he talks about the second death. Are you guys okay if I erase this? What's on the board? Because I'm at the bottom and we're out of space. So now we finally have something where there is a clear reference just a few verses later. The second death. So he's talking about the first resurrection, which is some living, using the Greek word zao, and now he's talking about the second death. So let's jump down to make sure we're all clear on what the second death is. Jump down to the end of Revelation chapter 20. Let's just pick it up in verse 14. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is the second death. Or when we were talking about different types of death earlier, the second death is eternal death. It is eternal separation from God. So now this is a, a huge help in going back to try to understand what John is saying in verses 4 to 6. Because what he is saying is there's a group of people who came to life. He's calling this the first resurrection. And he said everyone who participates in the first resurrection is blessed because the second death has no power over them. So now we are starting to see that Whatever this group of people is, John is probably talking about all believers. We see another clue for that in the end of verse 6 of Revelation 20. It says, the second death has no power of them, but they will be priests of God. Remember, what does, what does Peter call us? All believers. We are a royal priesthood. Okay, it would be really, really hard to read this group of people that are called priests of God and not apply it to all believers because the clear teaching of other passages of New Testament scripture make it clear that in Christ, we are all priests. So now we're starting to get a little bit more of a clue. So this leads me to believe that even though verse four is describing folks who have died for their faith in Christ, it's a much larger group than just those who will ultimately lose their life for Jesus. Because these are all people who will experience the first resurrection. These are all people who will come to life. These are all people who are priests of God. These are all people who will escape the second death. So now with that in mind, going back, I believe that this group that John describes initially I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge is a picture of all believers. And the martyrs that are described in the next verse and a half are a smaller group of all believers. I think that's what makes the most sense because all of us as, as believers are confident that we are escaping the second death. 
all of us are believers are confident that we are priests to God. We are a royal priesthood. So to me, now we have a pretty clear interpretive grid to look back at least part of this to say, John sees a group of people who are ruling with Christ. I think this is a picture of believers in general. Then he sees a picture of the martyrs who have died for their faith in Christ. A smaller portion of those who are ruling with Christ. Okay? But let me pause there just to see if there's any questions about this so far. We're trying to just kind of unpack this piece by piece. Yeah, Ted, you have a question or a comment? Yeah, I think that phrase that we use is the rest of the dead. I think this corroborates your explanation so far, because it, later in the, in the chapter, he talks about um, the, 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 other, the, the, other, the rest of the dead coming to life and standing before the throne. So that would that the rest of the dead, I, I think, early, early on in the chapter means the unbelievers. And, and so the rest, because the rest of the dead, uh, that don't, those that don't attain to the first resurrection, uh, it says later on, he says, I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne. Books were opened and another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books. So there, there's, there's two groups. There's the, the, the rest of the dead is, is the unbelievers. So it seems like both the beginning and the end of the chapter sort of uh, making a big distinction between uh, the believers and the unbelievers. Yeah, no, I, I think you're I would I would absolutely agree with you. One of the things that we've got to unpack is what does it mean that the rest of the dead came to life? Or that it seems implied because it says they didn't come to life during the thousand years or as long as the thousand years. But I think, again, exactly what you're doing, which is looking for clarity from connected passages of Scripture. And, of course, you were just reading a couple of verses ahead in Revelation 20, which is the best because if you can find something incredibly close to these verses that help us understand it, then we're really, I think, on the right track. Okay? Now, yeah, please, a, a comment or a question? Um, is there, are there other passages in Scripture that kind of highlight martyrs or separate martyrs from belief, like kind of, I'm kind of trying to understand why um, why you see like these martyrs are a part of the group, but a smaller portion. Yeah, the, the, the one that just comes to mind the most is the one that we just read, which is Revelation 6. I'm forgetting now the exact verses. Um, the ones where he specifically sees the souls of the martyrs under the altar with the breaking of the fifth seal. Uh, this is Revelation 6. 9 to 11. There's the place in Revelation 2 where it says they overcame the uh, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and their word of their testimonies and they did not love their life even to the point of death. Ted, do you remember where that verse is? But I don't know, can others of you think of other passages where martyrs are specifically sort of set apart as a group within the general group of believers? 
I mean, I guess part of it is maybe, Deborah, that, you know, that's the ultimate sacrifice, is to be willing to surrender your life for the Lord. But as far as I can tell, it's not, it's not a huge emphasis in the New Testament. Part of it may be, you know, we mentioned this before, the book of Revelation has really been an incredible source of hope and strength and comfort to the persecuted church. And so I think maybe part of why Revelation itself might sort of set aside martyrs on three different occasions is just to encourage the persecuted church that even if you lose your life for Jesus, you are going to be well rewarded and taken care of. You know, there's a passage in one of the messages to the seven churches where it says some of you are going to die. I forget which church that is. Ted, you probably remember. But Jesus is saying some of you are going to die. So it may be that, Deborah, just that because this is such a book that has resonated throughout the church age with the believing church, and of course a lot of believers have, have faced persecution or death, that may be part of why they're sort of singled out. So that even if you are called upon to lose your life for the Lord, you have nothing to worry. You have nothing to be concerned about. So, but no, I appreciate, I appreciate the question. But any other thoughts about that, sort of the martyrs being a, a smaller set or a, a point of emphasis in Scripture? Um, one other thing that we need to, to consider is if there is a second death, it would certainly seem obvious that there is a first death, right? Scripture never explicitly refers to anything as the first death. So we're left kind of trying to imply what is the first death. And of course, if there's a first resurrection, you would certainly think that means there's at least a second resurrection. It's hard to have a first if you're all alone. You know, if I finish first place in a race that I ran by myself, I didn't really finish in first place. So part of the challenge of this passage now increases by asking the question, well, what is the first death and what is the second resurrection? Okay, well, this group, what I'm going to from here on say is not just the martyrs, but is believers in general. They came to life. This is not the normal word for resurrection. The word for resurrection, there's a couple different words that are used. There are occasions where this word is used for resurrection, the resurrection of the body. I'm going to give those verses to you. We're not going to look at them. But there are places where this word does refer to resurrection. Uh, Revelation 2.8, uh, Matthew 9.18, and 2 Corinthians 3. 13.4, okay? 2 Corinthians 13.4. So there are some, the pre-mills would say this is bodily resurrection. This word zao here, it means bodily resurrection. So remember, that's what is beginning the millennium from the pre-millennial view. But zao generally does not mean bodily resurrection. So is there anything that might help us to understand this concept of coming to life as a first resurrection? Well, let's turn to John chapter 5. Let's turn to John chapter 5, 
uh, and we'll do 24 and following. John chapter 5, verse 24 and following. We looked at John chapter 5 a while ago because Jesus actually describes the bodily resurrection of all humanity in John chapter 5. We'll get to that, but let's pick it up in verse 24. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 24. It says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come. When Jesus says that, he means now. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Will dissolve. Jesus is saying, now that I have come, some of the dead are going to hear my voice, and when they hear my voice, they're going to live. Exact same word that John uses in Revelation. Okay? Continuing. It says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has gained this, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming. But notice now he doesn't say, and has now come. A time is coming and has now come, realized. A time is coming, future. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves, everyone who is dead, will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. We said this is a description of bodily resurrection. All humanity will experience bodily resurrection in the end. The righteous dead and the wicked dead. Those who died in Christ, those who died apart from Christ. That's what Jesus says. When all who are in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of Man, will come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. First question, is that the second resurrection? Because look at how Jesus puts it here. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear my voice and live. It's hard not to see a strong connection between that and what John is describing in Revelation 20. Future, a time is coming when all the dead will hear and come out of their tombs. So I think this passage makes it highly likely that this coming to life that John is describing in Revelation is the coming to life that we have all experienced when we heard the voice of the Son of Man and put our trust in him. I think that is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the end. Will the wicked dead come to life in the sense of will the wicked dead experience bodily resurrection? Yes, they will. 
they will not experience the first resurrection because they did not hear the voice of Jesus. They did not respond to the voice of Jesus. So they remain spiritually dead throughout the entirety of their natural life and remain spiritually dead once they physically die. But at the end, when the Son of Man speaks with the final authority, all of those who are in the tomb will come forth. So I think John chapter 5 is an amazing help to understanding this. We were dead and we heard the voice and we came to life. Came to life. You see, once you start thinking of it that way, this is everywhere in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And Jesus made you alive with him and raised you with him and seated you in heavenly places with him. We were dead and now we live. Again, I think the clearest way to understand this is this is what has taken place when we heard the voice of Jesus. And we said, yes. So I think the second resurrection is bodily resurrection. And I think the first resurrection is spiritual resurrection. That spiritually dead becoming spiritually alive. Now we start to see kind of a cool crisscross pattern here. The first resurrection is spiritual. The second death is spiritual. It's eternal. The second resurrection is bodily. So does that mean we should understand the first death as bodily death? Now this doesn't quite work because this eternal death, the dead in Christ, excuse me, those who have died apart from Christ will experience it in their body. But it's not the idea of physically dying. They will be physically alive, but they will be experiencing it in their resurrection body. So I think what John is describing here is how we came to life when we heard the voice of the Son of God and we put our trust in Him. Is there precedent for us ruling and reigning with Christ? Because these folks in Revelation 20 who came to life, they were seated on thrones and they ruled with Christ a thousand years. Well, Colossians chapter 3 is an excellent example of this. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Well, what is Christ seated on? A throne. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ. Where is Christ? Seated on a throne at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, spiritually, where are you? Seated with Christ on his throne at the right hand of the Father. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Go back a couple books. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, This power which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, is Jesus is seated in heavenly realms at the Father's right hand. Seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms. Now, jump to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 to 6. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 to 6. It says, He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Past tense. Paul was talking while he was still alive, talking to Ephesian Christians who were still alive. He said he raised you up with Christ and he seated you with Christ in the heavenly realms. Where is Christ seated? At the right hand of God. I, I just, I believe what John is telling us in these verses is not a completely new concept, but is in fact in line with so much of the rest of the teaching of the New Testament. We were dead and we heard the voice of Christ and we came to life. And now we are seated with him in heavenly realms. We are ruling with him. We are priests to him. All of these things are true for us right now. I believe that's what John is describing in these verses. And to me, you don't have to reinvent a whole new theological complex of ideas to make sense of the millennium. Because all you're doing is you're saying, well, wait a second. Most of what is being said here in a different way, in a fresh way, in sort of a more pictorial and creative way, seems to be in agreement with so much of what is clearly taught elsewhere in the New Testament. Okay? But again, let me pause here to see if there are comments or questions about this. Yeah, please. <laughs> Is this getting too deep for you? <laughs> but I mean we we may we may be, yeah, in in seminary class. I don't I don't mean to I don't mean to have it get that intense though, because again, hopefully what we're seeing here is okay. Revelation 21 to 6, it's it's not easy. But there are some things that are being said there that seem to be resonating with other clear teachings of scripture. And it doesn't seem quite as strange as maybe it does when you read it at first. Because, Andrew, if I were to ask you, were you dead and are you alive? What would you say? Were you dead and are you now alive in Christ? Yeah. Well, isn't that a huge theme of the millennium? Is this group of people, they came to life and they reigned with Christ. You know, are you ruling with Christ? Are you a priest of God? Yeah. So I think to me, hopefully, maybe you don't get all of the details, but hopefully what you're seeing is that the main themes of these verses are actually 
in agreement with other passages of scripture. And you don't have to invent this incredibly complex theological doctrine to make sense of the millennium. So, yeah. But Alex, you have a, a comment or a question? <clears throat> Where does apostasy lie on your neat diagram? Apostasy? I'm not sure how we get to apostasy. Just so, tell me so believers, train of thought. Believers who've believed and therefore have been resurrected the first time, who then stop believing, do they experience a third death or a 1.5 death? Well, to me, the question of apostasy is an incredibly significant question of the New Testament. I think doing a deep dive into apostasy right now may be a little bit off. Um, I mean, but the real, the real question of apostasy is, you know, those who fall away, were they genuinely saved? The question of apostasy, at least in part, the way you're posing the question is, can you be genuinely saved? And then can you genuinely lose that salvation? That's the question of apostasy. And again, you know, if, if we were going to do justice to the theme of apostasy, we'd want to look at Hebrews 6, we'd want to look at Hebrews 10, some of the, the passages that sort of unpack it. But one of the things that the Apostle John wrote in 1 John is, you know, the way that we know Antichrist is in the world is that there are many Antichrists out there. But then he goes on to say, and many have left us. So again, he doesn't use the word apostasy, but it's the idea that there were those in fellowship, there were those that connected that left. There are many who have left us, but if they had been part of us, they would not have left us. So again, that's just one passage, and apostasy is far more significant than that. But that seems to indicate, at least what John is saying, is they looked like they were part of us. But when they left us, it became clear that they were never really part of us. So that would seem to kind of indicate they looked outwardly as if they were genuinely saved. But then when they left, it was the clear indication that they were not. But the flip side is true. The parable of the prodigal son. You know, he goes out and squanders all of his father's inheritance, and yet in the end comes back and is fully restored as a son. That moment that you see him spending all of his money on prostitutes or eating the slop of pigs, is he, does he look saved? No, not even close. But he ultimately never stopped being a son and returned to his father's house. So again, I think, I think ultimately the threat of apostasy is real. We have to guard our hearts against wandering. We have to be vigilant not to let our hearts grow lazy and cold and fat and disinterested because the New Testament would not speak of the threat of apostasy as being real unless it was. So as believers, we need to constantly guard our hearts against that. But I don't believe Scripture ever teaches absolutely that it's possible to be born again, genuinely saved, and then lose that. That I don't believe. But here is where that Reformed doctrine of perseverance is, to me, just amazing. Because the clearest evidence that you are genuinely saved is that you will persevere and make it to the end. 
but you don't know that until you get to the end. So to me, this is one of the most profound aspects of biblical theology related to the theme of apostasy. We are to persevere. We are to persevere. And for those of us who are genuinely saved, we will make it. Even though there may be moments where we look like the prodigal. And there are those who are not going to be saved who may have periods of time where they look saved. They may be in fellowship. They may be, you know, look at that incredibly intimidating passage that Jesus says, you know, depart from me. I never knew you. And they're like, Lord, wait, didn't we cast out demons in your name? So only the Lord knows the heart. The threat of apostasy is real. I personally do not believe the New Testament ever teaches that you can be genuinely born again saved and then lose that. I think that would undermine the entire New Testament because all of that assurance, all of that, you know, but I do believe that our human perspective is incredibly limited. And there are those at times that look like they're saved that are not. And there are those at times that are saved and don't even look remotely like believers. So no, I don't think the idea of apostasy at all would undermine this. It simply is the ultimate evidence that you are genuinely saved is that you persevere and make it to the end. Does that kind of help answer that? Again, I just, I, it was not, I was not trying to be snarky at the beginning. I just, I wanted to know how you were wanting apostasy to connect with that because I, it was not something that would have come to me. But you were kind of thinking, well, if you've experienced this, how could you ever turn away? Was that kind of the thought of it? But I don't, I don't like that because usually when somebody says that, they're using it as a license to sin. And that is also completely nowhere to be found in Scripture. Now that I'm saved, I can do whatever I want and I can't lose my salvation. See, that to me shows that they may not even really be saved. Because if I'm genuinely saved, my response is not, oh, now I can sin and get away with it. My response is, how could I ever sin again? You see the difference? Because I've heard over the years people say, well, once saved, always saved. I'm not worried because, you know. I... But that's why I don't like that phrase, just because it can connote that. Oh, I accepted Jesus when I was, you know, six years old in VBS, and because of that, I'm going to live my entire life in adultery and debauchery and greed and selfishness and pride. But hey, I'm saved. Yeah, and not that that's the way most people use it, but that's, no, I mean, the, the legitimate response to I'm saved is, wow, I never want to save again. I never want to sin again. So, but yeah, it's, this is, this, this is like, you know, a week of studies all by itself. So, but no, I appreciate you bringing it up. But no, I think, I think the genuine work of Christ in our life is, is just that. It's a genuine work of Christ. And ultimately, the outworking of that is a life of perseverance. That we will make it to the end because the work of Christ in us is genuine. But part of how we make it to the end is guard our hearts against all of the threats of spiritual laziness, distractedness, all those other things. But does that kind of help to answer it? I think it could be framed to solidify some of what that teaching is because of that. But also, it's also its own thing. So I agree that it's not an easy thing to talk about for five minutes. Yeah. No, and I appreciate you bringing it up because, you know, again, 
Alex, you made a connection I did not. That doesn't mean, that just means my vision's very small and limited. That's, but that's why I was asking you at the beginning. I didn't see the connection, so I wanted to make sure I understood where you were coming from in that. So, oh, we have another question? Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Flora. Hi. I, you probably answered this along the way, but um, when you were talking about the martyrs and how, you know, they are the first to be like raised, I guess, with Christ or resurrected with Christ. And later on, I was thinking that are these guys the only ones who are resurrected? And then you said, you know, with the first resurrection, then you said that we when we accept Jesus is we're part of the first resurrection. Do I have that right or not? Well, I never meant to say that martyrs are raised first. If I said that, I, I don't believe that. So if, if, that's, okay. if that's what you heard, I completely misspoke or I said it poorly, which well, both, both are very likely. You know, the challenge of Revelation 24 is, who is John talking about? Is he talking about a group that is simply a group of martyrs? Or is he talking about two different groups? Or is he talking about all believers and then focusing in on martyrs? That's sort of the question of the opening of Revelation 20, verse 4. He says, he saw this group of people seated on thrones who were given authority to judge. Well, who are they? Because then he goes on to describe this group that are clearly people who have died for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, is that a further explanation of the first group? Or are these two groups totally different? Or is the first group all believers? Part of the group of all believers is the group of martyrs. I think that's probably what John is talking about. So in terms of order of resurrection, I do not believe any part of Revelation gives a priority to martyrs. It's not like they're resurrected first because they died for Jesus. What I think John is saying is, I saw a group of believers, or I saw a group who were given authority to judge. I think that's all believers. Now, some Amils believe that's only believers who have died. I actually believe it's all believers. I don't believe it's just believers who have died. But some Amils believe that's just believers who have died. And then among those believers who have died, some of them died for their faith in Jesus Christ, the group of, of, of martyrs. And they came to life and ruled with Christ a thousand years. But I think that first group, those who were seated on thrones and given authority to judge, I think that's all believers. Because I think from what Jesus says in John 5, 25, is that that coming to life is what happened to all of us when we heard the voice of Jesus. And because we are ruling with Christ right now, we are seated in heavenly realms with Christ right now. It's not just something that happens when we die physically. It's something that's true for us right now. So whether you're alive on this planet or whether you're in the presence of the Lord, you are ruling and seated with Christ right now. You are alive in Christ right now. I think in this case, the distinction between being physically alive and physically dead doesn't matter. Because all believers right now, whether you're in the presence of God or whether you're on planet Earth, are seated with Christ in heavenly realms and ruling with Christ right now. Now, some of those are those who have died for their faith in Jesus. But I don't think that these folks are given any priority in terms of order of resurrection. All of us came to life in Christ when we heard his voice. But does that help to answer that? Yes, it does. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Of course. It's 8.30. Did you have something quick? 
Well, I hope so. I, you know, the the one person that I think um, I'd be most interested to get his perspective. I mean, because Jesus made the perfect law and then lived out the perfect law and then understood the new covenant, and so it wouldn't be confusing. But but Moses, who was the human agent for the perfect law, as he's sitting on those thrones when it first when when Christ comes with this new covenant. I mean, he must think we get away with everything because God did not spare anyone in, you know, not even Aaron's sons for offering uh, whatever, not prescribed incense or something, a sacrifice. And here we are, you know, sinful as ever, covered by the blood, given this time span for however long God gives it to us to work out our sal salvation with fear and trembling to be sanctified and he's just like wow they're getting away with everything I mean not that the Israelites were perfect right I mean of course they came once a year of course they were just like us very human very fallible and they knew that by faith in their offering they were saved it wasn't the offering that saved them but by faith that Christ that that God forgave them but I mean, it, you know, he was talking about a seminary class where you think about the erudite and the intellectual things. And I'm just thinking about, I'm thinking of Moses and sitting on the throne. And I'm like, wow, you know, in my fantasy fictional story about Moses, I think he'd be pretty shocked at us and, and at, at everything, at the covenant. Yeah, I'm not going to try to project Moses's opinion of that. <laughs> I, I, I got to admit, sweetie, that, that comment leaves me pretty much speechless in response. <laughs> I, th I, think, I think Moses is celebrating the incredible redemptive work of Christ on the cross. I don't think he's saying, wow, you New Testament saints are getting away with murder. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to speak for Moses. So, um, yeah, I, I've, I've, never, I've never thought of it that way before. Yeah, I mean... You know, when Moses is hanging out, talking to Jesus with Elijah, you know, one of the Gospels says they're talking about his, you know, imminent departure. So that's that's the only example I can think of of Moses appearing in the New Testament. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But the, 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 the Gospel of Christ is glorious, and everything that Moses did was looking forward to that. You know, and every law that God gave in the Old Testament was pointing forward to that. So it's all culminated and fulfilled in Christ. And I don't think there's any, you know, begrudging that. I don't think so. But anyways, we're a little over 830 here. Um, so our next scheduled class is May the 3rd. I think probably what we'll do is we'll just have an initial opportunity for anyone who has any final comments or questions about the millennium. We may go back and, and try to make sense of Isaiah 65 or Ezekiel's temple or Zechariah 14. Because just let me end with that. To me, that's the most challenging portion of scripture for the amillennial position is the ones that we looked at three times ago, Isaiah 65, where it seems to be a much better place, but death still seems possible. Zechariah 14, where it seems like the glory of the Lord has come but a curse is still possible. And when the heck do we get Ezekiel's temple, which is just the last nine chapters of, of Ezekiel? Those are definitely the most challenging for the amillennial. But again, remember what we said from the get-go. If 
if this was a slam dunk, the believing church would not be in disagreement. You know, if, if pre-mills and post-mills were idiots and amills had every question answered, then amills would be the only ones around. But the truth of it is there are folks who love Jesus, who love the Bible that are pre-mills. There are folks who love Jesus and love the Bible that are post-mills. And the same is true for amills. What that tells us is each position has some strengths and each position has some challenges. What we have looked at tonight, I don't think any of this is super challenging. I, I actually think this stuff is, is pretty straightforward in terms of, is this the best way to understand these verses in Revelation? I really do. What really challenges me is Isaiah 65 and Zechariah 14. Those are passages, <laughs> I'm a lot less sure what to do with them. And I'm just being totally honest with you. So to me, just looking at what we looked at tonight, I think it's, it's, it's really hard to say that the pre-mill or the post-mill has less problems. I think they have way more problems. I think this, from simply a Revelation New Testament perspective, makes the most sense. And you have to be the least inventive of creating a whole separate age that's nowhere else spoken of in the New Testament. But if you throw in the Old Testament and you read Isaiah 65 and you read Zechariah 14, yeah, a millennium as a third age fits pretty nicely with those passages. Something that's way better than today, but not quite as good as eternity. So that's where I think the Amils really have their, their biggest challenge. My, my seminary professor, Andrew mentioned seminary, my seminary professor who was an Amil said, well, if you're an Amil, you have to take a much more adventurous approach to some of the Old Testament prophecies. And I think that's absolutely true. But that being said, the Lord said to Moses, when I speak to my prophets, I'm going to speak to them in riddles and dreams. I'm not going to speak to them clearly as I do to my servant Moses. That much we can say about Moses. God spoke to him clearly face to face. So if the Old Testament prophets have some riddles and dreams and enigmas, that's exactly what the Lord said he was going to speak to them. So anyways, let's close with some prayer. You guys got to get home. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for this time together tonight. And God, I just I, I want to thank you that the millennium is not a mystery to you. It's not at all puzzling or perplexing or complicated or confusing because, God, everything is clear to you. It says even darkness, even darkness is as light to you. Nothing is hidden from you. Nothing is mysterious or strange or unexplainable to you. You know everything from first to last. And I am just so grateful to you for that. But Father, I also want to pray that, that each one of us would do everything we can to handle the scriptures rightly. You have given us an incredible privilege and responsibility, which is your word. And God, you don't want us to treat it casually or routinely or with disinterest. God, this is precious. This is your revelation of yourself to us. And Father, we acknowledge that we are limited and small and finite and tiny. But God, we want to do everything we can to handle your word correctly. And so, Father, I just pray that anything that was said tonight by me in particular that is not in line with the truth of your word, I pray that that would fall to the ground and be forgotten. I pray, Lord, that all that we would hold on to are what you have spoken to us in the scriptures, because you are the only voice worth listening to, and your perspective is the only one that matters. 
Jesus, you are Lord, and we all bow our knees to you. We all surrender ourselves to you, and you are Lord of the millennium. Whether it's now or in the future, you are Lord of the millennium, and we are so grateful to you for that. And Jesus, it's in your name and for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you all for being here. Lord willing, we will be together on May the 3rd. Drive safe. Enjoy the rest of your night.